Um, if you didn't know, my name's uh, Michael. I'm on staff here, and uh, I'm just really blessed that you would join us today uh, on this Sunday uh, for worship. Uh, we're diving back into our series through the book of Genesis, and for the next seven weeks, we'll be looking at uh, the life of Abram. It's going to be an in-depth series, and you might think, my gosh, seven weeks is a long time to look at one character in the Bible unless it's Jesus, obviously. But uh, I want to just tell you that besides the person of Jesus Christ, there is no more important figure than Abraham in, in all of Scripture. Right? Besides Jesus, there is no more important character than Abraham. In fact, many scholars declare that Abraham is the most significant figure in the ancient world. Uh, if you today walk past a mosque and walk past a synagogue, and walk past a church, those all, the, the, they all actually have um, a couple of main things in common. And the first is they're monotheistic. But the second is that uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all claim Abraham as the father of their faith. Okay? Uh, they all claim to be descendants, the true descendants of Abraham. And that's fascinating. We're actually, over the course of our series, come to see why and how Abraham actually unites and connects Judaism, Christianity, and even Islam. Uh, well, so Abraham is absolutely central uh, to our faith. It's, he's actually central to, to the gospel uh, because Jesus is the greater Abraham. And so let's go ahead and begin our series today with a reading of God's word. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 27 to Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. So we'll start with Genesis chapter 11, and we'll finish with Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. 
And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. The word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, have you ever been called to go somewhere you've never been? Or been called to do something you've never done, leaving behind all of your comforts, leaving behind all of your familiarities? Well, this happened to me when I left my home in Atlanta to attend USC, which, by the way, put a glorious beat down on the Huskies last night. Fight on for my Trojans and Trojanitas. Yeah. Um, yeah, Pastor David, if you guys notice, I think he shared something about that, that USC jersey he was wearing today. He's from Washington. He's a Husky uh, alum. And uh, this morning I was praying for his joy that that lost would not, you know, mute his joy in the Lord. Anyhow, when my parents supported my decision to attend USC, I had nothing but excitement and pride. All my friends were so envious of me that I get to leave the South, get to leave Atlanta and come out to Los Angeles, to come out to Cali, which only people outside California call California Cali. Have you guys noticed that? Yeah, so all my friends are like, oh, you get to go to Cali. And I was like, dude, yeah. I mean, actually, back then I didn't even say dude. Um, I only started saying dude when I came out to California. All these weird things happened when I came out here. Um, so I was so proud. I was so excited uh, when I was telling my friends I'm coming out to USC. But actually, uh, the closer I got to leaving home, as the summer of my senior year was ending and the fall uh, was approaching, the fear of the unknown began to overwhelm my heart. Was I really ready to leave everything behind? my friends, my family, my hometown, my home church. I loved my church back in Atlanta. That's the place where I met the Lord. I got involved with student ministry and worship ministry. My, some of my best friends were my friends from church and I just couldn't imagine leaving them behind and finding a new church and a few, new community. That was like terrifying to me. Everything and everyone I loved was in Atlanta, uh, the Waffle House included. If you've ever been to the South, you know how glorious the Waffle House is. Um, but at the peak of my sorrow, uh, God gave me a tremendous sense of peace. You know, when, when I was the most burdened, the most uh, in despair, God really came and, and, and he gave me a lot of assurance. He gave me a great sense of peace. And I know that uh, looking back, I was much more of a feeler, you know, like the, the Myers-Briggs and, and at the end you either are a thinker or a feeler. I know back in high school, I was much more of a feeler because the peace that God gave me, it actually came through the words of a song uh, by a band called The Cry. And back in the 90s, they were super popular and The Cry was the cry with a K. It was, it was kind of weird, but cool, I guess. Uh, but the chorus of the song went like this. I just want to share it with you guys. I said, take my hand and walk where I lead. Uh, keep your eyes on me alone. Don't you say why were the old days better just because you're scared of the unknown. Take my hand and walk where I lead. You will never be alone. Faith is to be sure of what you hope for and the evidence of things unseen. So take my hand and walk. Boom, boom, boom. Take my hand and walk. Um, as soon as that song finished, I, I genuinely had peace in my heart. And this peace came not because God gave me a detailed plan of everything that would happen to me over the next four years. He didn't show me this like detailed, perfect picture of, of what college was going to be like. That's not what God gave me to, 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 to bring me peace. 
Neither did he assure me that nothing bad will ever happen. God didn't say, hey, Michael, I promise you're going to be super popular. Everyone's going to like you. You're never going to get your heart broken or anything like that. That, that. that wasn't even something that God promised to me either. But I realized that God gave me peace because he was calling me out with a promise, a promise that he would never leave nor forsake me, a promise that if I fix my eyes on him, that I would never lose my way. And when I remembered that, when I heard God give me that promise, I had peace and I was ready to leave home. I was ready to leave everything behind and go wherever the Lord was leading. Church, there are two main things I wanna do in today's sermon. First, I want us to understand the original meaning of the text. That, that needs to be the, the, the primary goal for us. Each Sunday, as the word is preached, I hope that you would long to hear the original meaning of the text more than like a great illustration or a story that gives you the feels or some funny jokes because Pastor Michael, I am not very funny at all. Like, like yeah, I'm just not funny. Um, and so I, have, I don't have that to offer you. Um, every Sunday, I really want to encourage you to be uh, the type of person that comes longing to hear the truth of God's word, the original meaning of the text. So I want to try to offer that to us uh, from Genesis 12. I want for us to see why Genesis 12 is the central chapter of the book and why the call of Abraham is so significant to the Bible's entire redemptive story. Well, the second thing I want to do to us, uh, for us today is consider how the call of Abraham reflects the call of God in our lives. Okay? How does the call of Abraham connect to us? How does it reflect God's work and God's call in our lives? And what I don't want to do, though, is to, to make you think that the, the exact same way God calls Abraham is the exact same way God calls us, because there's a major distinction. There's a major distinction. And, and so I don't want us to think, okay, well, uh, is God going to make me a great nation? Is he going to give me this crazy seed and make my name great and, and bless me that I can be a blessing to all the nations or anything like that? Um, actually, what we want to see is how we are members of the great nation that God promised to Abraham. I want us to see how we are actually the ones who inherit the great promised land that God offered and spoke and promise to Abraham. I want us to see that we are actually the ones who enjoy the fullness and the greatness of the blessing that God promised to Abraham. Right? There, there, there's a fulfillment that you and I experience that actually Abraham never, in his fleshly life, experienced. And we're going to look at a passage that reminds us of that. Okay? Um, so I want us to see that. The title of today's message is The Call of Abraham. And I've got three points uh, which come to us from the text. And the first is this for the very few note takers that are left in the church. Uh, first is this, uh, the call of God is a call of grace. The call of God is a call of grace. Second, the call of God is a call to obedience. The call of God is a call to obedience. And thirdly, the, the call of God is a call to mission. The call of God is a call to mission. So there's a simple formula and just plug in the word grace obedience, and mission, and that's the sermon outline. Let's start with the first point. The call of God is a call of grace. I mentioned it earlier, but Genesis 12, 1 to 9, it's the central passage of the book. Everything before Genesis 12 is leading up to God's promise, and everything after is the fulfillment of that promise, okay? Everything leading up to here is just build up, and everything after is the fulfillment, okay? Now, if this is true, then we need to pause and recall what has happened in Genesis up to this point. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, we have that famous creation account where God spoke everything into being, right? Day by day, he spoke it all into being. And at the end, he looked at it and he said, behold, it was very good. And then Genesis 3, we have that, that, that heartbreaking, terrible story of the fall of Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3, we see the downward spiral of humanity beginning. Soon after, in Genesis 4, we have the first murder with Cain killing his own brother, Abel, out of jealousy and out of anger. And then sin continues to ravage humanity to the point where a man named uh, Lamech declared, he said this, and it's gonna pop up on the screen. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold and Lamech's is 77-fold. That's how bad things are getting in humanity. It's one thing for us to say, oh my gosh, Cain, how could you kill your own brother? And then later a man named Lamech comes and says, if you thought that was bad, I got 11 times worse, right? This was a man with real anger issues, writing poetry about his own revenge, writing poetry about his own murderous thoughts, his own murderous desires and actions. But Adam and Eve had another son named Seth. And with the birth of Seth, the Bible tells us, that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is another way of saying that, that when Seth was born, people started to worship God again. And Seth represented the hope for humanity. Seth was such an important figure in the beginning of, G, uh, of Genesis. But like so many things, this hope quickly faded away. And in Genesis 6, 5, we see that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord decided to destroy the earth with the flood, sparing only Noah with his family who were descendants of Seth. And through, though the flood destroyed the earth, the flood failed to destroy sin. And so Noah's descendants, what did they do? They continued in sin. And they eventually were the ones who built the Tower of Babel or tried to build the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And this was a great symbol, a terrible symbol of human pride and idolatry. And what does God do? He prevents them from building the Tower of Babel. He confuses their language. He scatters them across the earth. And that was Genesis 11. And so here we are. We come to our passage today. We are post-fall. We're post-flood. We're post-babble, and we're pretty much post-hope. Everything seems hopeless. All of humanity seems lost in godlessness. No one is worshiping. No one is calling upon the name of the Lord. Everything seems lost in despair. That's where we are today. And our text is here, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. And it's not because I love reading genealogies. I, like, I, at times I struggle with them. I'm wondering like, oh, what accent should I use? Should I go like Hebrew and be like Tara, all right? Or should I just like be my country hick self and say Tara, right? And so uh, in the first service, I was going back and forth. It was really weird. I was like Haran and Haran, right? But second service, I'm like, I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna, you, you do you, Mike. So I just went Southern and uh, I'll try to be consistent all the way. So Haran, Tara, Abram. Anyway, so it's not because I love reading genealogies, but we started with Genesis chapter 11 because it tells us some crucial information about Abram's family and what he was doing prior to the call. What was he doing here? We see that Abram was with his family. 
They were living in this land called Ur. And while Abram was there in Ur, God came to him, telling him, leave the land. Go into a place that I will promise you. Go into a place that I will lead you. And we know this because Stephen in Acts 7, 23, um, he was preaching. He was preaching to Israel and he said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, this is very important because a lot of times we assume, and I, I always assumed that the first time God came to G, uh, Abram was Genesis 12. Like that was like the beginning of God's relationship with Abram. But actually, Stephen says, no, 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 no. It actually happened before. When Abram and his family were li living in Ur, God came to Abram and said, hey, you gotta leave. Leave, go out into a different land. And this is why in verse 31, it tells us, that they went forth together, Abram and his family, they went forth together to go into the land of Canaan. But what does it say at the end of verse 31? When they came to Haran, they settled there. You guys see that? Okay. So already earlier when they're living in Ur, God said, leave, go into the place I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you. And so they're okay, they started leaving. They started going towards Canaan. They hit Haran and they said, you know what? It's good here. We're gonna settle here. And this is the first thing we need to note from the scriptures. God had already called Abram to leave his family and go to Canaan, but Abram and his family, they settled early. Perhaps it was convenient. Perhaps the land was good and they were doing well there, building their wealth and they were flourishing. And we actually see this because when Abram was what actually finally decided to obey God and go into the promised land, it says that Abram collected all of his people right? All the people that he gathered in Haran, they all had to go. And it's not like, oh, he just like started a gang. No, the assumption is there that they were his servants, right? He gained riches. He gained wealth. He was flourishing. Him and his family were flourishing in Haran. It was good. And that's why they were like, if it's so good here, why would we move on to Canaan? We don't even know what's out there. Let's be here. Well, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, he famously, this is probably the most important quote of the entire book. He famously wrote this. The enemy of great is not bad. Good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. Few people attain great lives in large part because it is so easy to settle for a good life. Do you guys see that? Right? How many of us are like, oh, you know, I have good grades. That's good enough. You know, I had a good meal. That's good. I had a good workout. I don't need to like max out, right? I had a good session of studying. I had a good, I had a good quiet time. You know, why do we have to like go all the way? We don't have to be so intense. We don't have to like strive for great. I think that's so true for so many of us. Well, this certainly seemed to be the case for Abram and his family because life was good in Haran. Things were good there and they settled there early. They didn't make it all the way to Canaan. Not only did Abram settle, but his life, his family was steeped in idolatry. Joshua, in his great sermon to Israel, tells us of this idolatry in chapter 24, verses 2 to 3. And this is what Joshua says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor, they and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abram from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. 
Wow. Do you guys see that? Church, do you see these two things happening to Abraham in his life prior to the call? He wasn't where he was supposed to be. God wanted him to be in Canaan. He was in Ur, right? And he wasn't worshiping who he was supposed to worship. And this is why the first point of the message today is that the call of God is a call of grace. We often assume that Abraham was living a righteous life and set apart from everyone else, don't you? When you think about Abraham, don't you think, man, Abraham must have been a man who like had the favor of God, who walked with God, who was uncompromising and lived this righteous life. And that's why Abraham was chosen. That's why God looked at Abraham and said, you know what? In you, I'm going to start a new people. That's why we sing that song. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham because he was the man. Don't you just imagine that? I know I always did, but the Bible tells us something else. No, it's not because Abraham was living a perfect life. It's not because Abraham was walking with God and obeying God and being so righteous. No, Abraham was not where he was supposed to be. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham was not calling on the name of the Lord. He was doing nothing to merit the call of God in his life. And yet, Abraham had, and yet God had a greater plan. God had a greater purpose for Abraham. And that purpose was for Abram not to settle for a good life, but rather to seek the kingdom, to receive a great life in the kingdom of God, to to have his name be made great by God. Genesis 12 is not merely about the redirection of Abraham. Genesis 12 is not merely about Abraham and his family migrating from one city to another from one good area to a better plot of land. No, Genesis 12 is about the redemption of Abram. And church, isn't this our story as well? If you have been called by God, if you know him personally as your Lord and Savior, it was never because you deserved it, was it? Did you merit that call? Did you merit God revealing himself to you? Did you merit Jesus making himself known to you as your personal Lord and Savior, as your substitutionary sacrifice? No. What is our testimony? And our testimony is that God called us out of our sin. God called us out of darkness into light. God called us out of our death into his life. We understand the Christian life is a testimony that the calling of God as a calling of grace. We were called because God first loved us. We were, we were called, because, we were called because, because God wanted to save us from our own wandering, from our own struggles, from our own sin. And this gives us so much hope because we're reminded that we don't have to clean up our lives first in order to receive the call of God. Think about that, okay? If I told you, okay, what do you need to do to really like hear God? to know him, to receive him, to receive his blessing. Wouldn't so many of us be like, okay, I need to fast. I need to pray. I need to quit swearing. I need to start doing my quiet times. I need to go to church. Maybe I need to join a small group. Maybe I need to serve. And then, then, and only then will God really speak to me. Then and only then will God really make himself known to me. Don't we naturally think like that? Abraham's call says, no, there's something else. The call is not based on your work. The call is not based on your merit. The call is based on the grace of God. So God loves you first. God initiates that conversation with you first. God pursues you first before you even know where to start pursuing him. 
The call of God meets us where we are. The call of God meets us where we are. But the good news also, and the challenging news is also that the call of God never leaves us as we are. The call of God never leaves us where we are either. And so this leads us into our second point. The call of God is a call to obedience. Let's read again verses one to three in our passage today. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. Now, the call of Abraham can be broken into two commands and six promises. So those three verses we just read, that is the, the, the ultimate call of Abraham. That's known as the Abrahamic covenant, right? And we can break this down into two commands, six promises. Each, the, each command is followed by three promises. So the structure is simple. The first command is go out, okay? Go out, right? Go out from your land. Go out from your family. Go out from your father's house, And then there's three promises if Abraham obeys. I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great. The second command is this, to be a blessing. To be a blessing. And then the three promises that follow that are to bless, that God will bless those who bless him, that he will curse those who curse him, and that he will bless all the families of the earth through him. Very simple then, right? So one command, three promises. Second command, three promises. Genesis 12 is what theologians have called the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant of grace. We'll go deeper into this in the following weeks, but for now, I just want to say a few brief things about it. Have you guys heard, uh, been taught maybe in Sunday school and in a sermon that the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant? And the Mosaic covenant is like the conditional covenant? So that one is like of grace and the other one's of works. Well, that's not really accurate. And it's not entirely helpful to make one unconditional and one conditional because it makes it seem like Abraham then doesn't have to do anything, right? If someone says, I will love you unconditionally, what is that supposed to mean, right? Backstreet Boys, I don't care who you are, what you did. You know, like we think that no matter what, No matter what, they're going to always love us. No matter what we do, what we say, God's always going to love us. And so we take that and we bring that into this mix. Okay, I guess Abraham doesn't have to do anything. God does everything. But that's not actually what we see in the text, is it? It's not an unconditional covenant. The reality is that God did require something of Abraham. And what did he require? Obedience. God required obedience to leave home, and to be a blessing. Those are the commands. God called on Abraham to have faith and believe not just with words, but with obedience, with actions. And so we must not miss the radical nature of Abraham's obedience. We must not miss the fullness of God's call on Abraham's life. I know that our translations use the phrase, go from your country. I love the ESV and that's what it says, but the actual translation is get you out, okay? Get you out. The old King James, I don't know if we have any King James people here in the church, but the King James says, get thee out, right? Get thee out, and and, and it's beautiful. It captures the real truth of what what, uh, God is telling Abraham. Literally, God is saying, get thee out of Haran, whether your family follows or not. Abraham, get yourself out out. 
Leave your land, leave your family, leave your father's house and go where I show you. Okay, you get yourself out. You tried to go, you tried to lead your family that first time out of Ur, but they settled in Haran. God's like, don't let that happen again. Don't settle. Whether your father follows you or not, whether your brother comes with you or not, whether your barren wife Sarai comes with you or not, you get yourself out and go into the place where I will show you. Derek Kidner argues that Abraham's family first set out for Canaan because they were following God's word to Abram. They believed him. So when Abram's like, guys, family, huddle, we need a meeting. God told me to, that we need to leave. We need to go into this land called Canaan. And they all agreed and they were down until they came to Haran. And things were just so good in Haran. Uh, Abram's father, Terah, decided, you know what? I'm the patriarch, head of this household. We're gonna stay here. And that's actually why at that account, the end of that account, it says Terah dies, right? At the end of chapter 11, Terah died. He was 205 years. And then after the father died, God came again to Abram and said, now get thee out. Get thee out of this land. Your father's dead. Get thee out. Leave your family. Uh, leave this household, right? Now this is radical because Abram, in Abram's day, family was everything. I know to us, uh, family isn't everything, unfortunately. It, it should be, but you know, like how hard do you try on like Father's Day now, right? How hard do you try to honor your, you know, mother on Mother's Day or whatever it might be? Um, it was my brother's birthday yesterday. I didn't even call him, guys. Oh, this is being recorded too. It's so sad, right? Family, I, I can't, I know, I know we're supposed to say family's everything, but it just isn't on the radar. Sometimes we try harder with work. We try harder with school. But with Abraham, family really was everything. In their day, family was everything. Um, think about all of the major family units in Genesis up till now. With the exception of Cain, who was banished, every major family unit stayed together and they moved together, okay? If you look in Genesis and in the Old Testament, you see family units that are healthy and loving and functional. They stay together. And if they move, they move together. Noah and his family, Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife, they all went into the ark. Noah wasn't like, oh, there's only room for two of my sons, right? No, he took Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. And they all got in that ark. Why? Because family was everything. Abram with his father and his two brothers, they all stayed together, whether it was an Ur or Haran. And then even after his father died, Abram took his nephew Lot and his wife and they moved. They went into Canaan. God is telling Abram, get thee out. There's a radical nature to this call. And Jesus actually echoes this as well. Jesus tells us that if we're not willing to hate our father and our mother and our sister and our brother for the sake of following him, we're not fit to be his disciple. And that word hate, it's not, it's not like, oh, I need to be mean and cruel and spiteful against my parents. No, it's just, we need to be willing to leave if God calls us out. God says, you get thee out. The second thing I wanna note about Abraham's obedience was not only that it was radical, but that it was driven by faith in God's promise, not in a detailed plan. That Abraham was obeying out of faith, not because God had like laid out this perfect plan for Abraham. Just like the story of Noah, Abraham here has no verbal lines. Read chapter 11, read chapter 12. Abram gets no lines. 
And in Hollywood, if you get no lines, you're not even an actor, you're an extra, right? Right, yeah, anyways. Um, And so Abram gets no verbal lines. The only one who speaks is God. And all we see of Abram is his obedience. And the point is this, the author's trying to tell us that man, we need to see Abram's faith. We need to make much of Abram's obedience to God's word, right? God told Abram to leave his home but didn't give him an exact location. He didn't even give him a direction, right? God did not give Abram the longitude and latitude of the exact place that Abram was supposed to go. He didn't even say, Abram, go south by southwest, right? He just says, go and go into the land that I'm gonna show you. And Abram was supposed to take God at his word. God promised to make Abram a great nation. Abram could have wondered, you know what? How is that gonna happen? I'm 75 years old. I have a wife, but she is barren. That means no kids. How, God, are you gonna make me a great nation? And God says, go out and I will show you. God promised, and he says, you know what? Um, Yeah, like God said, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna make your name great. But Abram could have said, how? I'm a nomad right now, God. I'm living out of tents. I'm a nobody in a foreign land. How is my name going to become great in this foreign place? God says, go and I'll bless you. Go and see. How is God going to bless all the families on the earth through Abraham? What a crazy thing to say, right? What a big promise. Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God's like, Abraham could have been like, how? How? How is that possibly going to work out? God just simply says, obey me and you'll see. I'm not going to give you like the seven step plan. I'm not going to give you the entire blueprint. You have to obey me. And if you're like me, somebody who's like dominant idol is control. We squirm when we hear this, right? Don't we? Because we want to know the details of the plan. If someone says, hey, I'm going to bless you You just got to go. What's your question? Where? Right? If someone says, hey, I'm going to bless you, you just have to trust. You're like, how long do you want me to trust you? Right? We want to know the details. We want to know how much something's going to cost us. We want to know what the time commitment is. We want to know how this is going to affect my personal life. Right? And yet God doesn't doesn't offer us a call with those details. He doesn't always satisfy our OCD tendencies, right? We, we naturally want all the details. We want to know the plan before we agree. And yet God says, you have to take me at my word. You have to believe me. You have to be willing to follow me. Guys, when I proposed to my wife, I had just finished seminary. I had no plan. I had no plan. Um, All I knew was I wanted to be in ministry, but I didn't even know what kind of pastor I wanted to be. At that time, I was a worship pastor slash college pastor, right? Um, So Friday nights, I'm leading Bible study. Sunday morning, I'm leading praise. And so that was cool. But I just wasn't sure. I was like, do I want to be a worship pastor, like serious? Or do I just really want to focus on being a college pastor? And then later on in the life, I'm like, I don't think I want to do either of those. Like, do I want to be an executive pastor? Do you want to be a lead pastor? I'm not sure about any of those things. I, I didn't, when I proposed to my wife, I didn't have a five-year plan. I certainly didn't have a 10-year plan. And I had like nothing, 
okay? I didn't own a house. I didn't own a condo, right? The only thing I owned was a five-year-old Toyota 4Runner, which I still have, and that's turning 10 like next year, right? Isn't that crazy? And so it's just depreciating. Every time I take it out of the driveway, the, the most expensive thing I own is just getting cheaper and cheaper, and I'm getting poorer and poorer as that thing depreciates. But this is what I told Alice when I proposed to her. Oh, and I actually bought her shoes, you know, to, to, to like bring a thing. But I heard in Korean culture, you're not supposed to buy people's shoes because they're going to run away from you. But I didn't know that because I was like, ah, oh, whatever, right? But, uh, but it, it fit with my proposal, okay? And so this is what I said. And I looked at Alice with the shoes in my hand. And I said, I don't know where the Lord is going to lead us, but I know I want to go with you. Right? Girls, this is when you say, oh. Let me say that one more time. Like I had the shoes in my hand, right? And I had no plan. I know I had no blueprint, but I looked at her and I said, so I don't know where the Lord is gonna lead us, but I know I wanna go with you. And guys, guys, it worked. Yeah, it worked. It worked. Um, I didn't have a blueprint, but she said yes. Why? Why did she say yes? It's because she wanted to go with me. Why did she say yes? Because she wanted to be with me and that was enough. Okay. The same is true with God. The same is true when God calls us. Okay. It's not that Canaan is so much better than Haran. It's that God is so much better. Okay. It's it, 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 like we, we have to understand that. That when God calls us, he's not just calling us into maybe a new job. He's not just calling us into a, a, a new major or a new location or a new lifestyle. God is calling us to himself. God is calling us into a relationship with him. God is calling us into his kingdom to be his sons and his daughters and his people. And that is the heart of the Abrahamic covenant that through this covenant, that through this word and work in Genesis 12, God becomes our God and we become his people. And if that is the case, if that is really what happens, then that's enough, isn't it? Then we can follow. We don't need to know the details as long as we're with God. As long as God is leading, we can go anywhere. We don't have to be afraid. His rod and his staff will comfort us. He will protect us. So Abraham's able to obey. Not because he's so radical, but because God is so great. God is so worthy. God is so present. So the first point is the call of God is a call of grace. The second point is the call of God is a call to obedience a call to trust, a call of faith. The third is the call of God is a call to mission. That means God wants us to do something. When we are called people, when we are his citizens, it's not just, oh, here's your citizenship and just chill. No, he wants us to do something. Our passage closes with an amazing set of verses. Let me summarize what happens in verses four and nine. Abram obeys the Lord and he goes out towards Canaan with his family. He goes with Sarai, he goes with Lot. And when they get there, despite the danger of the Canaanites, they continue, okay? They continue. And then the Lord, just to affirm him, 
just to say, Abraham, you're on the right track. He appears to Abraham and he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, I'll give this, the land, Abram, that you're standing on. This is for your offspring. And while in Canaan, he builds several altars to worship and call upon the name of the Lord. He does this twice. He does it once at the Oak of Morah and once uh, by Bethel, right? He builds these altars to the Lord. Now, do you remember the second command God gave Abram? The first was what? Get thee out. The second was be a blessing. Be a blessing. And the promise was that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, I don't think it's an accident that in the very next passage, right after God says, hey, I'm gonna bless all the families in the earth through you. In the very next passage, we see Abraham as he's going into Canaan, that he's setting up altars to worship the Lord. He's setting up altars to worship the Lord. And I believe that Abraham is teaching us what it means to be a blessing to the nations. What does it mean when God says, be a blessing, hashtag blessed, right? What does that mean? Abraham says, you know what it means? It means worship. You set up altars and you worship. You make God known in a foreign place. You worship God. You're not ashamed of God. You're not afraid to call upon the name of the Lord in a place that does not know his name in a place where there is fear and dread, a place that might be full of his enemies, Abraham sets up altars and he worships. That's how he's a blessing. That's the only way he could possibly just understand what it might look like for all the families of the, Lord, of the world to be blessed. Abraham says, okay, they're gonna have to worship you. Does that make sense? That's their worship, to spread the worship of God is to share the blessing of God. To spread the worship of God is to share the blessing of God. John Piper famously wrote in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, the call of God has transformed Abram. Remember in verse chapter 11, what was Abram doing? He wasn't worshiping. He wasn't calling upon the name of the Lord. In fact, his family, his father and his brother, they were all idolaters serving false gods. But what happened once God called Abraham? God transformed him into a worshiper. And this is the first time in scripture we hear of Abraham worshiping Yahweh. Remember how Seth represented the hope of humanity? Why? Because with him, people started calling on the name of the Lord. Do you remember Noah and his first act after the flood? The first thing he does when his feet and his sandals hit the ground, what does he do? He builds an altar. He builds an altar to worship the Lord. What we see here is that Abraham is restoring humanity's hope. Abraham, in the same manner of Seth, is calling upon the name of the Lord again. Abraham, following the pattern of Noah, a righteous man, sets up an altar for the worship and the glory of God. Well, finally, we see that Abraham shows us an amazing picture of what life on mission looks like. Okay. Life on mission, what does that look like? If God is calling us out, not just to, you know, just have that like, you know, title of Christian, but God wants to call us out to be on mission, Abraham 
paints an amazing picture of what this looks like. In verse 8, there's this short mention of Abram's living situation. It's really short. You might like pass it and, and omit it the first time you read it. But simply, the author tells us that Abraham pitched his tent and he built altars for the Lord. It's so short, you might think nothing of it. But there's an intentional contrast there that the author is trying to press. And one is permanent, one is temporary. Okay? One is permanent, one is temporary. Right? One is passing, and yet one is, is long standing. One is a priority. And Abraham says, he realized, you know what? My earthly situation, my comforts, my living quarters, I'll just pitch a tent. But for the Lord, I will build an altar. Even as God promised to make Abram's name great, Abram's priority was to make God's name great. So he built altars for the Lord. And the amazing thing is you read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see his sons, you'll see, uh, you'll see the rest of Israel come into the promised land and they'll worship at those same spots. They'll see the altar, they'll see the oak. They'll go to Bethel. Amazing things will happen. Why? Because Abraham built an altar to worship the Lord. They have no idea where he set up his tent. They don't know where he lived. They don't know where he slept. They don't know where he ate. But Abraham's like, that doesn't matter. Where I live, where I reside, means so little compared to where God is worshiped. So I will pitch my tent and build his altar. What about you? I think for so many of us, we got it backwards, don't we? We want to build our homes. We want to build our resumes. We want to build our careers. We want to build our families. And then just go to church. Right? Is that you? If that's the case, would you consider Abraham? Would you consider the call? Would you consider the mission that God perhaps is inviting you on a mission to be a blessing, a mission to make God known and to realize that when we do this, oh, we become part of God's kingdom people. We enjoy God's everlasting inheritance. We can truly experience what it means for Jesus Christ to reign as our king in our lives. Let me close with one final verse. Hebrews 11, chapter 8. There's an important thing about Abraham that we always have to remember. Abraham left, but Abraham never arrived. Okay, that seems so interesting, right? Abraham left his home, but he never arrived. You know, he went into the promised land, but he just passed through. In Genesis chapter, at the end of this chapter 12, he actually ends up in Egypt and something crazy happens, okay? Um, I don't know if we'll be able to, if we would be satisfied with that. If God calls you to leave home, but you never arrive and land and put your feet down and put roots down in a place on this earth, well, that was Abraham. This is what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see that? Do you see that? Abraham lived in tents his entire life. 
but he was an heir to a greater promise. He was living for a greater city, a city whose designer and builder, the NIV says designer and architect, the builder and architect is God. Friends, what are we doing? Are we longing for that city? Are we longing for that life and for that joy or, or am I living for the city that I can build for myself? The renown, the comfort, the success that Michael Lee can build for Michael Lee. Like that's so weird, you know, like I know it's like ridiculous when someone refers to himself in third person. Well, we live for ourselves in third person, right? We do so many things for ourselves, right? So many of our actions, so many of our decisions, so many of our commitments are for ourselves. And Abraham tells us there is another way to live. There's a greater way to live. There's a greater thing to pursue. You might think that your life is good, but God wants to offer us great. A a greater city than Sunland, a greater city than than even Pasadena or Porter Ranch or the glorious La Cañada. God wants us to reside eternally in a city where he is the builder and he is the architect. Let's pray. Lord, would you set heaven on our hearts right now? I know that that for so many of us here, we, we might have the burdens and the distractions of bills to pay, um, tests to study for, projects to complete, family members to to care for. Father, I pray that that in this moment right now that you would speak to us and you would remind us and show us how great you are and that you would give us hope, you would give us reflection to be able to consider what life might look like if we took you at your word, if we were willing to give up the ordinary, the temporary things of this life to receive the imperishable things of you. Lord, we know, we know that you've created this world as good, even as very good. But help us to see that in Jesus Christ, there is greatness. In Jesus Christ, there is a treasure where moth and rust cannot destroy. God, would you set your promise and your kingdom on our hearts right now? We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.